We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Steve with coming at you again with Father Paul Pearson, Oratorian in Canada, north of the border. Father, welcome. Good morning, good afternoon. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. We, before we start, can you lead us off in a little prayer? Certainly. An Oratorian tradition is always to pray to the Holy Spirit. St. Philip was one of the great saints of the Holy Spirit. Yes. We always pray to come with the Holy Spirit at the beginning of everything. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. And that's a renew the face of the earth. Face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who has taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant by the light of the same Spirit that we may be truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Since you brought up Philip Neri, St. Neri, could you yes. go over his joyfulness? Sure. Um, well, I think partially it was his personality, but also for him, he thought that really living the Christian life and understanding what the Christian life is about meant that Christians ought to be joyful. And that that goes back to the New Testament as well. That Christians will be identifiable by, by their joyfulness. Mm -hmm. And for him, it wasn't a sort of lightheartedness. It was something deeper than that. There's something that was life was fundamentally hopeful and that we were being taken care of by God all the time. And if we understand that, we really shouldn't be burdened by things. And so it isn't just a sort of frivolousness. In fact, he is pretty, can be pretty tough on that. But he was saying that we really ought to be light like children because we were being taken care of all the time. And that trust in providence was what made, made the difference for him. Amen. No, I appreciate that. I was just thinking about that going, you know, you brought up Philip. He was a jokester. He had a good time. He was serious when he needed to be. But his, his jokes were sometimes a little hard to take. <laughs> <laughs> he'd, he'd see people who were sort of puffed up and he'd poke them like a balloon. And <laughs> so if you were the brunt of the joke, sometimes it wasn't so funny. Um, he was one for really instilling humility in people. Yeah. Uh, he, he really thought that not only did we need to laugh, but we need to be able to laugh at ourselves. Mm -hmm because he thought that humility was really the foundation of all virtue. Mm -hmm. And if we couldn't <laughs> allow ourselves to be corrected, if we couldn't look at ourselves honestly, if we couldn't laugh at ourselves, mm -hmm. then we weren't going to make much progress. So Yeah, I remember, his, uh, his, was, did he get up every morning and say it? Uh, uh, watch out for Philip today, or uh, he will abandon you, or he will betray you? Yeah, there are a bunch of different maxims that are really similar to that, yeah. yeah. You know, 
I'll, I'll make a fool of you today, or I'll make a fool of myself today, or I'll make the wound in your side larger. <laughs> he, was, he was pretty convinced that, you know, he could get up to all sorts of mischief if God didn't look after him. We'll have to, now this isn't the topic of this today's show. Maybe maybe nope. we'll do that. Maybe we'll do a Philip Neri one down the road. Yeah. But Dante. Yep. The Inferno Maybe his Florentine. Yeah. How uh who is still let's start off with who was Dante? Who is yeah. Well Dante is such an important character in, in Italian history, Italian literature. Mm-hmm. Dante is sort of like the common the combination of influence of something like Chaucer and Shakespeare, all in one. Because he was really one of the first to write in the Italian language. He was there in Florence. Um, he's writing around the early 1300s, died in 1321. And um, he composed, did many things. He was very involved in politics as well. And in fact, he wrote his great work, The Divine Comedy, Inferno, Purgatorio, mm-hmm. Paradiso, it's a trilogy, while he was in exile. Mm-hmm. And uh, never was allowed to go back to his native Florence again. And uh, in fact, he's buried in Ravenna and wouldn't even allow his body to go back after afterwards. <laughs> no, no, you wouldn't let me back when I'm alive. You're not getting any profit off of me when I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> the tomb they have in Florence is empty. Uh, he's not there. Um, so he was somebody who was really immersed in the arts and philosophy and theology of his time. Mm-hmm. And he puts it all together in this amazing work, The Divine Comedy, um, which is so rich that all sorts of people have tried to write about it. It's interesting in terms of history, in terms of the politics, mm-hmm. in terms of the church-state relations, theology. And so people come at it from all these very technical points of view. Um, but what I found to be sort of sad in all of that, although he's gotten a lot of attention, I think it sort of distracted from the main point of what he was trying to get across. Around this time, around 1300, there was a new sort of spirituality which was focusing on everyday people, lay people. That spirituality and holiness wasn't something intended just for people living in monasteries or people who ended up saying mass every day. It was for everyday people. So you start having people writing about uh, things like Pilgrim's Progress. Um, You'll have the um, imitation of Christ coming out soon after this. Mm -hmm. Dante's right at the beginning of that. And he's really writing as a sort of everyman, trying to show how you have to how you have to live your life in order to make progress spiritually and that there's a real choice for each one of us and so he intends this work not just as a sort of tour de force of literature or a survey of history it's more importantly a guide to the spiritual life and that aspect of it i think has been well neglected perhaps it's also because a lot of the books that get written get written to be read in secular universities. <laughs> and they know that if they emphasize the spiritual part of it as much as Dante does, that it's not gonna sell. <laughs> well, I think they sort of missed the point a little bit as a result. Uh, those works are all very, very interesting and very helpful, but in the end, they're only at serving the main point, and that's that Dante wants to help us get to heaven. And he was about to lose that. He was about to lose it all. He was really off track and had a sort of conversion experience that brought him back, and he wanted everybody to share that conversion that he had. So it's basically just almost a biography of his conversion. Well, in a sense, it's very autobiographical. Mm-hmm. But in another sense, he means himself as a sort of an example of everybody. Mm-hmm. Because he's going to go through all the sins in hell and in the inferno, 
and he's going to look at them very, very honestly, sort of see the corruption of them. And you'll be able to tell some of those sins were sins that he had problems with, mm-hmm. and some of them were sins that weren't really problems for him. So, but as you go down through the circles of hell, it's almost like an examination of conscience. Mm-hmm. You're reading some of these saints, some of these sinners down there, and you think, "Wow, yeah, that sounds familiar." Uh, those excuses, I've, I've used those before, uh, and sometimes it sounds really painfully personal. And I, I think that it's a sort of examination of conscience as we go down through these different levels to see, yeah, that could be me. That could be me. Which goes back to the humility of Philip you were mentioning, that Dante has, you have to have humility to actually do examination of conscience. Oh, yeah. And to, for Dante to do this in public, it's very clear when he has a fault. And he just lays it out there for everybody to see. <laughs> there, there are parts in, in, in Purgatory right at the end when he's with Beatrice on, at the top of the mountain of Purgatory. And she humiliates him. She just reduces him to a, a blubbering mass and, <laughs> and even the angels are saying oh you're being too hard on the guy come on be, be nice and she says no no this is for a reason mm-hmm. she's doing it in order to make him be as sorry as possible for his sins mm-hmm. and he lets us see all of that and it is it's very humble now the iron sharpens iron type deal i mean we we're kind of soft in a sense now somebody corrects us even a priest Mm-hmm. And we're about, oh, how can they say that about me? Blah, 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 blah. And we're good to point, but we don't like to take ownership of the situations. It's a hard thing to take correction. Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing to admit when we're wrong. And I think that's something that, that Dante was very familiar with. He's very, he was a proud man. Um, and you see him really growing in humility throughout the course of the Divine Comedy. But also telling us that we need to do that too. And I think in our generation in particular, mm-hmm. we've gotten so unaccustomed to being able to take criticism or to admit we're wrong. And that's a real problem. Because if we're going to grow, we need to be able to take that criticism constructively. Um, I remember when I was in university, I was a musician. I played the cello and I was doing master's classes with a fairly famous cellist. Uh-huh. And, uh, he was very nice to a lot of the people. And when it came to me, he had quite a few corrections. And um, when he came up on stage to talk to me, he leaned over to me quietly and says, I have lots of corrections because you play well. <laughs> and, and Oh, mm-hmm. you see, there's something there that can be fixed. Uh-huh. And the more you see, the more the potential is, the more you want to push it. And you know, each human being has that potential. But if we're too squeamish to push, uh-huh. then we're not going to become what we can be. We'll always end up being sort of uh, undeveloped in our potential. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you think all walks of life. So you think of sports. I mean, coach, a good coach is going to push you to become better. He's not going to say, hey, I remember my JV coach once said, never take the, always use the word satisfied as a cuss word. Never be satisfied of <laughs> where you're at. Always try to improve. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I think there, there's, I mean, certainly as a teacher, I'm sure my students will tell stories about how demanding I can be at times. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, this, this whole Divine Comedy project started in the seminary. I was really surprised that a new generation of people hadn't grown up reading in the way that I did. Uh-huh. 
And as, I mean, I read thousands of books, <laughs> literally thousands of books. And for many of them, they hadn't read any works of great literature. Mm -hmm. And they found literature to be sort of intimidating. And that's not a very good thing if you have to read the Bible and interpret the Bible. <laughs> it's going to be a problem if you have to preach. Yes. Well, I think it's a problem just in terms of our humanity. It's not just for priests. So I said, if, we're going to, if I'm going to get them to read scripture well, which they need to do in order to do mental prayer and meditation and preaching, then I need to show them how to read. Mm -hmm. So we decided to have a seminar in which we just read a book together. And, and so I chose Dante's Inferno. I didn't tell him it was a poem because that would have scared him. Um, <laughs> and we read it out loud. And we just stopped every once in a while and talked about it. And it's different when you hear things out loud. Mm -hmm. And it's different when you have other people to talk with you about it. Mm -hmm. And so we got to the end of the book and it was really sort of life-changing for a lot of them. And they went, immediately wanted to do the next one. Mm -hmm. And they pushed their other students, like, you got to take this, you have to take this. Um, and uh, so it became sort of a, a thing so here at the seminary. And several of the seminarians have been through two of the courses. Um, only I've only done in Purgatorio and, and Inferno on a regular basis. Paradiso has only happened recently because I only had two years to teach them. So I <laughs> coming around to the third. <laughs> yeah, it takes a while. Um, but really, what I'm trying to do in the books is to give everyday people a chance to sort of eavesdrop on those seminars mm -hmm. to read Dante with us mm -hmm. and to go line by line and just talk about what it means to figure out how it applies to our life right now in this century um, how it applies to our spiritual lives mm -hmm. and so it's broken down into little bits that anybody can handle was so like it's really not just about Dante it's also about learning how to how to how to read and not be afraid of great literature yeah, I remember my brother, who is now a priest when his first year in seminary, told me, hey, I'm reading a book called How to Read a Book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually read that book. It's, you had to read the book, How to Read a Book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a comment on our, on our society where we've gotten away from reading. But when we get away from reading, we get away from slowly thinking our way through things. Mm -hmm. We tend to think in little snatches, like, you know, little little sound bites or little things in, in you know Wikipedia or something like that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all these tiny little things, but not connected, not slowly unfolding. And there's something about great literature which allows you to see into the complexities of things, especially the complexities of being human. Mm -hmm. Think about a great novel, and you think about how much a novel teaches you about humanity, even if it's fiction. Mm -hmm. And for Don Dante's Divine Comedy, teaches me so much about being human. He's a brilliant psychologist. I remember talking to a psychologist friend of mine who said, where did Dante get that stuff about suicide? And I said, I don't know. She says, because that's very modern. This idea that somehow they can only communicate with others by through their own suffering. But they can't put it into words that only their suffering can make everybody understand, then you'll be sorry, then you'll know how much I've gone through. Yeah. And he had all of that already in the 13th, 1300s. And uh, he's brilliant in figuring out what makes us tick. Yeah, we moderns tend to think of all those guys back then being less educated than us or... Oh. I mean, those guys could... I mean, like Bellman and all those guys had the Bible memorized. Yeah. 
you know, that, that he'll blow your mind with what he knows. Yeah. I and mean, he, he, he's able to figure out, he's in, in Purgatorio, they get out and they're in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh-huh. And he's able to describe how the constellations are different. <laughs> he's talking about the Southern Cross. Yeah. He's, this is 1300. Uh-huh. And how does he know these things? <laughs> he, there's a moment at the end of Inferno when he's climbing down on Satan's legs. Uh-huh. And there's a moment when they switch around and he feels as though instead of climbing up he's climbing down he's climbing up well what's happened is he's actually past the center of the earth and what was down is now up uh-huh. and dante figured that out and i thought who would have figured that out in 1300 <laughs> yeah it's, it's sometimes you're just at a loss to figure out how he knew so much about science about philosophy and theology um and but the really important thing for me is how much he knows about human nature and um, how revealing he is to what makes us actually do what we do, why we're so slow to turn around and, and repent, mm-hmm. why we hold on to things even when we know they're doing damage to us. Now, for the ones you're putting together for the course notes, this might be an obvious one, but should you be reading the original book while, like right beside the other one? Well, that's my preference. You know, mm-hmm. the, I know that it says on the back of the book. Uh, that reading Dante is not required. Yeah, but it's really preferred. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it helps it's intended, a lot. <laughs> intended to be a sort of companion volume uh-huh. where you read a few lines of Dante and then you read this book. Um, yeah, it's supposed to be a companion volume, really. That's that was my original intention. Now I've certainly included a lot more spiritual context uh-huh. to allow you to um, get your sort of thoughts together spiritually without having to read Dante at the beginning. Uh-huh. But it's there to get your mind in the right space so that you can read Dante effectively. It's not really supposed to be a substitute for reading Dante. The uh, illustration the illustration of Dante, uh, was it by Dore? I got it over there. The, yeah, Gustave Dore, yeah. Yeah. Is is yeah. that, what, what would that rank? Would that be one of the, like, you must have this one? Or is there like a the definite edi- edition of Dante's Inferno? Well, you know, there are many really, really good translations. Mm-hmm. Um, I've used mainly Anthony Essel's very fine translation. Mm-hmm. Um, he was kind enough to do the foreword to the uh, Inferno volume. Um, and I think his is probably one of the great ones, and certainly one of the ones that's most Catholic. But there, there are many really fine ones. I like Anthony, uh, Anthony Essel's. Alan Mandelbaum is also very fine. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Musa is another one that I, whose notes are particularly helpful. Um, so, and but there are just so many. There's Hollander. I'm a fan of uh, John Sinclair. That's the one, the old Oxford University Press one. That's what I grew up in. <laughs> um, we studied in, in university, um, but it's hard to you know do without Dorothy Sayers, famous novelist who also did a translation, or John Chardy, the American poet who did a translation. Mm-hmm. I even have Henry Longfellow. <laughs> <laughs> um, did a translation of it. Not a very good translation, I don't think. But, uh, um, but so there are many, many different editions, and you you can read any of them because they go line. I go line by line by line number. So mm-hmm. no matter what translation you have, you'll be able to keep track in my commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, but if somebody wants a recommendation, I recommend Anthony Eslo. Why is this even important? Well, I think because for many of us we don't really think about our spiritual life, mm-hmm. except insofar as we try to avoid sin. Mm-hmm. 
we don't really think about how we're doing inside. And in fact, we live in a world in which people are less happy than I think they've ever been. Mm-hmm. We live in a world that's burdened with so many things, that's anxious. And you know, we're safer than we've ever been. Uh-huh. Our food chain is safe. We're not starving to death. You know, even now in the middle of this lockdown, I mean, it's not so stressful. I mean, we're fairly safe. Uh-huh. These sort of things happened all the time in the 1300s when you're at Dante's age. Uh-huh. You know, you would have, most children didn't live to be 10 years old. We live in a safe time. Why are we so anxious? Uh-huh. Well, Dante's point is that sin actually does something very destructive to us. It twists us up, and we become sort of crippled human beings. And part of that being crippled is that we end up suffering. And so, out of mercy, God wants us to rehab. He wants us to straighten out that twistedness. And it's only once we start rehabbing that we'll get out of pain. Mm-hmm. And so, Dante wanted that for people of his day, but I think in our day we're even more out of touch with the damaging effects of sin than the everyday person was in Dante's day. So the message that he was getting, getting out to people that somehow the reason there's pain is because we're messed up (laughs) and we're not going to stop hurting until we start getting our act together. It's not just about obeying the rules. It's about being free. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. I, I had I had some joint problems and I had to go to rehab. And the rehab specialist told me right away. She says, "You're going to hate me at the end of the hour. <laughs> this first few times is going to hurt a lot." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Okay, that's fine." I said, I, "I I understand, and I don't blame you." She says, "But you have to remember the reason we're doing this is so that you can be pain free, mm-hmm. and so that you can retain regain your freedom of motion." Mm-hmm. And that's true in the spiritual life, too. Our goal here is not to squeeze suffering out of you. God doesn't need that. He's only doing this because somehow the things we go through, whether that's the sufferings in this life or the sufferings in purgatory, mm-hmm. are the sufferings of rehab, mm-hmm. not yeah. the sufferings of torture. I remember, uh, I think it was, Alphonse, it was a sermon I have on, uh, or a sermon I've, I've heard before, of uh-huh. uh, a father talks about, the stone, like Michelangelo sees a stone, and he has to inflict pain on mm-hmm. it to get this beauty out. And if mm-hmm. that stone was jello and starts squiggy around, I don't want this, I don't, how would it look like? Mm-hmm. And that's us, we, we don't want this, we'll try to squiggle out and get rid of that cross, let me take another one and that one's heavier or uglier mm-hmm. for, versus what God wants us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that the whole idea of being formed, mm-hmm. whether that's being formed just as everyday people being formed into holiness, or seminarians being formed as priests, Mm -hmm. or religious being formed, it's not an entirely comfortable process. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said with physical therapy, I was a trainer, I remember people, a personal trainer, people would tell me, you must be destroyed. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want your goal, you gotta go through the, you gotta go through the fire. Yeah, it's true, and we have, and Christ Himself told us that we have to be willing to die in order to live. Mm-hmm. And Saint Paul talks about it as an athlete preparing for the contest. Um, many people in in the spiritual history have talked about the spiritual combat. Lorenzo Scupoli, probably the most famous. Right. But 
the idea that somehow we have to be willing to fight for this and that it's going to hurt and you're going to it's going to take some courage you know you're going to have to be willing to take it and that sometimes it'll be hard say there's somebody watching and they're hearing and they're agreeing with everything you're saying but they go i don't have the courage what's some good ways to build it i think what you the way i always start with myself is to look at the suffering that my sins are causing right now Mm -hmm. i really dislike conflict i disliked it from the beginning um but you know avoiding things like that gets you in trouble Mm -hmm. and i look back and think oh you know how much trouble i've got myself into you know how awkward it's been um do you really want to go through that all over again you have to get to a place where you're sort of sick and tired of the mess so that you're sort of desperate enough to do it (laughs) yeah if your knee gets bad enough you're willing to have a replacement Mm -hmm. Um, i remember one doctor saying to a friend of mine says i not i don't think i'm really ready ready for surgery he says that must be because your knee doesn't hurt bad enough yet <laughs> and it hurts bad enough you'll want it <laughs> yes yeah well you can't walk anymore yeah you go for it exactly exactly and, and you know, I'd, I'd rather not get to that level with people spiritually mm-hmm. i don't want them to become that level of crippled before they're willing to accept rehab mm-hmm. yeah what are some uh good books as a prerequisite to get to Dante or she just dive into Dante you know I would I think it's, it's there's no problem with coming into Dante fresh okay I've had English as a second language students straight from high school I've had scientists who've never read a book of literature who've read Dante if they can do it anybody can there's no movies on that day. <laughs> well, if there are, they're weird. They're, I know they're, vi- they're video games. And <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, don't read Dan Brown. That's stuff. No, no, yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's good for starting a fire. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's perhaps true. I read the few, first few pages of it. And uh, as a medieval, I'm trained as a medievalist, and it drives me crazy. Yeah, I bet. I, I'm that's sure. So inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I can't read stuff like that. So yeah, um, I think really he intends it as a. All you need to bring is your own experience. Uh-huh. And if you just bring in a willingness to go through it with him and a willingness to bring your own experience to the discussion, there's no way you're not going to get something out of it. And read him not like uh, you would a regular book, just yeah, you take you your time with it. Slowly. You know, he's, each of the books is broken down into 33 chapters, what he calls cantos, songs. Uh-huh. And there's an introductory one. So total the trilogy, three of 33, plus an introductory, 100 cantos. So it's already broken down a lot. And then I've broken down each of the cantos into three or four, even five sections, and given a little introductory spiritual talk about that, uh-huh. and then go through that section. One of those sections is enough for you to read at one sitting. And really, I think that sometimes we, try, we read spiritual books too fast. Right. We need to chew on it and digest it. St. Philip used to say that when you're doing spiritual reading, you should already read until something grabs your attention. Then you should stop. And you should let yourself just think. Let yourself react to it. Mm-hmm. Think, well, what difference does that make? And don't go on. It's like not biting off more food until you finish chewing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So I think we read too quickly when we're reading spiritually. And again, it might be a softball. How do you know when you're reading too fast? Well, I, I think when, when you're, you just you stop noticing, you stop really interacting with the material. You just sort of observing it mm-hmm. rather than interacting with it. And to tell you the truth, I think that most people actually read not just too long, they actually read too quickly. Mm-hmm. This is why in class I make my students read out loud. I'm really trying to, to make them hear the words. Mm-hmm. When I read literature, I tend to read and make sounds in my head. I Sometimes I actually read out loud, but I, I want to hear it in my head. The different characters have different voices, you know. Uh, I want you, you. You need to slow things down. Um, and as I said, just read until something strikes you, mm-hmm. and then allow yourself to 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 ponder on that for a bit. That sounds like that does a couple things. One builds your imagination to your memory. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly, I think the imagination is something that we sort of lost track of. Mm-hmm having things be visualized for us um, is doesn't do nearly the same thing to our brain. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to picture it for yourself. Not just because your picturing it is going to be better than Cecil B. DeMille's picturing of the Ten Commandments. He's pretty good at it. Um, <laughs> and sometimes it can be helpful to see other person's picturing of it. But you know, until you picture it, it's not as real to you. Mm-hmm. When I picture, when I read a book, I picture the character. He, there's a particular face, there's a particular voice. When I see a movie or a TV adaptation of the book, I sometimes think, yeah, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> and that character is real to me because I've stored away all these images. Mm-hmm. It's almost like my own history. I've stored it away as something I could picture, mm-hmm. I can hear. And when your imagination works like that, your emotions react to your imagination. If your imagination doesn't work, your emotions don't work very fully. And so you're not really interacting as a full, in a full personal way with the text. So it's only when, you, when you're emotionally involved like that that I think that you're, that you're willing to take it personally in a good sense. I remember we had a Jurassic Park. I don't know if it's still in here or not. The uh, yay thick. And I just opened it up one time and I read a couple chapters and went, Wow, I saw the movie, but I got hosed. <laughs> the book is way better. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. They they always have to condense things to make a movie, um, and that, that's that's sort of unfortunate. And anyway, the movie keeps going mm-hmm. when you probably need to pause. Yeah, something happens, and you go, and at that moment, you need to stop. It's not there for entertainment. We're here to try to learn to read in a spiritual way. This is equally true of reading scripture. Mm-hmm. When people tell me they read a chapter a day, I say, oh, I could never do that. I said, you couldn't read a chapter a day? Well, come on, you're, you're educated. I said, no, 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 you read a verse, and there's like six things to think about, you know? And if you really think about it, it's too much to be able to run ahead and do a whole chapter. I feel as though I've just sort of like run through a store without ever stopping and looking at anything. Yeah, I can, I can, I can't even fathom how Saint Teresa of Avila talked about reading or meditating for an hour on the words "Our Father." Yeah. Well, if, if you, as you get used to it, as you begin to 
slow yourself down mm -hmm. and read more carefully like this, you'll see that that, that happens. It's, it's because it's not all just talk, 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 talk in your head. Remember, it's about imagination and then an emotional reaction. Uh -huh. And, you know, let's say that you read a text, a text like, mm, when the, the disciples are there with Peter after our Lord's resurrection. Uh -huh. so we've been reading about these things in Eastertide. And so, 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 Peter, do you really love me? And he asked him three times. Three times matching up to the three denials that he made, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh doing this in front of everybody well as he's doing that think for a moment how does peter feel not only is he embarrassed that he was such a coward that he gave in not under torture but under the questioning of a milkmaid in the dark yeah. <laughs> uh, that's heroic yeah. <laughs> uh, but now he's being corrected for it in front of all the other apostles mm -hmm. And he's supposed to be the boss. Yeah. Yeah? Think of the humiliation of that. And I think when you stop and think about that, you think, you know, how often have I not been willing to take correction in public? How often have I, have I let embarrassment, let me hide from the truth? And as you begin to react to that, you think, why am I reacting to the text that way? Mm -hmm. Well, that tells me something about me, doesn't it? Your emotional reactions are going to be different from mine. Mm -hmm. And that's because your history is different from mine. And so that emotional reaction tells me that there's something there in you that needs to come to the surface. And now I need to say to myself, okay, if that's true, what do I need to do? How do I need to live my life in order to live the truth of this text? And that's why meditation takes time, mm -hmm. because it's not just about thinking about reacting and seeing what it's telling me about me and then resolving to do something about it no that's great no no perfect um how long should somebody read dante say dante mm -hmm. uh, should they try five minutes on just a couple verses when the uh, one of the 33 or go you know, until they I would say that you know I've sort of, I've tried to design it in in my commentary mm -hmm. to be able to take one section and, and right, the editors have done such a beautiful job of laying it out. Each section is starts with a box that's highlighted, mm -hmm. and it talks about just a spiritual point in general without making any reference to Dante, just to get your head on the right channel. Mm -hmm. And then it goes through a section of Dante, and you'll get to another section, another box that gives talks about another topic. Just read one of those topics. So it's maybe like a fourth of a canto, a quarter of a canto. Mm -hmm. It might just be less than a page. And that usually is plenty. And don't rush ahead. There's, there's, there's probably half a year of spiritual reading in my book. That works. Yeah, I've, yeah. I, I, I will self-diagnose myself with ADD. So I, I, I try to read one book, a chapter, and then go to another book and another book. Sure. Instead of trying to divulge all one together, try to get like a history and apologetics, spiritual reading as well. Different, different if it, there's a, it's a murder mystery you're trying to, yeah. yeah. Different if it's a murder mystery you're trying to follow the plot of something, tracking down the killer. Uh, that's that's a different thing. But mm -hmm. here you're you're really trying to to digest, and that takes time. There we go. Oh, sorry, the the thing froze up on us.
We're okay. good. Okay. Uh, sorry about that, folks. It's OBS. Send your hate mail to them. It does it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's the purgatory I have to live in. <laughs> yes, well, accepting what happens is part of that, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. So um, what would be step two for somebody that read Dante? Where would they go from there? Well, you know, I think that, first of all, I, I, I've read Dante dozens of times. Uh -huh. um, I go back and read it every year with my seminarians, and it's always a fresh experience for me. And because my, my own life has gone in a slightly different direction, I notice new aspects of it and go, uh -huh. oh, that's interesting. I never picked that up before. And um, so I, I think you, you can certainly do that. But I think but once you've been through the, the Divine Comedy trilogy, first of all, go through it a few times because it's, it, it's rich enough to do that. Mm -hmm. But then I think you're ready to go back and, and try to read other books that are like this. Spend time reading scripture, but read it in the same way. Mm -hmm. Only read the section of the gospel that's set aside for today for mass, for example. Mm -hmm. And only read as far until something hits you and then make yourself stop. So try to use that pattern of reading. It might be that you're going to read spiritual writings like the spiritual combat by Scoopley or the mm -hmm. imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. Um, it might be that you're reading something by John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of books that I'm particularly fond of. <laughs> I really like um, the spiritual letters of Francis de Sales. Mm -hmm. I think they're just absolutely charming. Mm -hmm. yes. um, and when I need an uplift, I just read those. Such a wonderfully warm and fatherly figure. Um, so it, a lot of that depends on the personality. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to recommend spiritual reading to somebody because it's, a, I don't know, some things that I find particularly moving, other people might not. Um, exactly. So the wonderful thing about the Divine Comedy, I think, is that it's so diverse mm -hmm. that it's going to get you in, on one level or another. Because even if Dante's sins aren't your sins, you have other ones. <laughs> well, that goes back to all the spiritualities, Carmelite spirituality, Dominican, Benedictine, Redemptorist. Well, I, th I think they, they all follow a similar pattern mm -hmm. of trying to engage personally. And that using of imagination happens in various ways. Some people can be more visual. I tend to be slightly more psychological. Other people put themselves back in time. Other people bring their Christ up to the present time. It's all fairly minor variances of one pattern. Mm -hmm. I imagine things, and I allow myself to react. And then I use those reactions as a way of diagnosing what's going on in me, and I make resolutions. So you're probably, you're probably saying tell people to take notes while they're reading it. Well, you know, don't be afraid to... I, I won't be offended if you scribble in my book. Um, go go get you a new book. That's <laughs> no, fine. Now, not my personal book. You buy your own and get it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think you, you will find that making yourself stop and take notes, uh -huh. make, underlining things, putting stars to go back to, um, those are all that's important things. You're, you're, you're finding something that's nourishing. And you might be able to go back and get nourishment from it over and over again. Uh -huh. Yeah. You don't just like find your favorite recipe and have it once. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Once you find that thing, you make it over and over again. <laughs> or just read one book and just do it and that's it. You put it down, you never pick it up again, you sit in the corner of your room. Well, yeah. I, I, there, you know, there are some books that are like that. 
Uh-huh. But I think that a good spiritual book becomes almost like a spiritual friend, and some, and you go back over it and you see new things to it. Um, I've reread the spiritual letters of Francis de Sales, I don't know how many times, um, or the abandonment to divine providence by Jean-Pierre de Gossard. That's another one of my favorites. Uh-huh. Um, um, spiritual combat by Scoopley. Um, there are some that just sort of catch me and I go back to them and because my life has changed me, my reading of it changes over the years too. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, yeah, there are some one-time books. I tend to get those from the library and not own them. Uh, <laughs> but there are other books that I find myself going back to over and over again. And no. Those are the ones I wear out. Well, that goes the question of, wait, what's your top five books? Uh, you already named them. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I, uh, I have a shelf in my office just over here that I leave for the seminarians and say, you know, this is not mandated for you, but I just leave them there so that you can sort of come in and check them out and if you like them get them for yourself i guess on kind of on that besides the bible the imitation of christ uh what would be somebody's you must read this is there one well you know i think a lot of it depends a lot on the personalities Uh i mean when i was first a catholic i'm a convert um when i was first a catholic i remember going through the um the um Alphonsus de Liguori's book, The Passion and Death of Christ. Uh-huh. My first Lent, that was it. I was like, oh my goodness, this blows my mind. Uh-huh. Well, after doing that a couple times, it didn't really do the same thing for me. Uh-huh. And I needed to go on to something else. So I think it's, it's quite personal uh-huh. and different things work at different times of our lives. Um, one thing I do think that we don't do nearly enough of, and that is of universal appeal, our lives of the saints. Yes. I think really good lives of the saints are a blessing. Mm. Yeah, I love um, um, Yvonne Waugh's Life of Edmund Campion. Uh-huh. That's just a great book. His, also his, his book, book, Helena, about the mother of Constantine. Yes. That's very great. I love the books of Louis de Waal, a whole series of books written in the 40s and 50s um, that I think are, are really wonderful. Um, yeah. Chesterton's Life of uh, Francis de Sales and Thomas Aquinas. One of your old uh, uh, priests told me about this book. I'd even, never heard of it until they did a thing, uh, Saints, oh, for, yeah? uh, Saints for Sinners by Goodyear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, St. So, so Philip used to say, we, we, if you want to become holy, you need to read books that begin with the letter S. Yes. Yeah. St. Bonaventure, St. Philip, St. Hey, Thomas. Yeah. And I think that the lives of the saints are holiness in a personal form. Mm-hmm. And when you read it that way, you sort of imagine it as being possible for us. I think finding saints who have something similar to you mm-hmm. can be very moving. Oh, yeah, very much so. I remember when my dad, when he was alive, we were playing ball. He would always tell us to read. I was a basketball player. Larry Bear was my guy. Mm-hmm. Chris Mullen. I'd wa- I remember Tim Hardaway's crossover. I memorized how to do it. Those mm-hmm. would you know, watch the MVPs to become better in what you're doing. Yep. Same thing for religion. You, the saints are the Hall of Famers. Yeah. And you know, I think two generations ago, my parents' generation, mm-hmm. um, people would have studied those in school. Mm-hmm. Reading time in Catholic school would have been the lives of the saints. But nowadays, people don't really know those stories. If I t- just bring up a, the life of a saint in a homily, people say, oh, you should talk more about that. I don't know anything about those things. 
to go, yeah, that's, they're, they're our history. Mm-hmm. And they're the people that we're, we're hoping to spend eternity with. Mm-hmm. And we should start studying up on them because uh, they're going to be our next door neighbors, God willing. Yeah. Um, or if we want their help. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, they're so inspiring. And I think that the strange thing is that they're way more involved in my life than I am in theirs. Yes. They're, they're more interested in me than I am in them. Yes. One of the great things about Dante, um, his, his life got way off track. And he starts off the Divine Comedy in the Inferno, lost in a dark woods. And he doesn't even know how he got lost. Uh-huh. He's trying to get his way out of this dark woods. And there are three beasts who stopped it. His, his pride, his and, and anger, his, uh, his lust, and his greed. <laughs> um, and he realizes he can't do it. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, this man appears. It's the, the ancient poet Virgil. And he's been sent by three ladies from heaven. You see, the Blessed Virgin Mary noticed that Dante was off track. She's a good mom. And she said, you know, hey, he's not figuring this out in his own. And he's not getting out of this without help. So the Blessed Virgin called Lucy, who was one of Dante's special patrons. Mm-hmm. Saint Lucy, you need to do something about this. Well, Lucy knew that there was this nice lady, Beatrice, who was one of Dante's muses. And uh, so the three of them got together and made a plan. They were going to do what we would now call an intervention. <laughs> and they were going to say, we're putting you through hell. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only way. It's the only way. We're taking you on a guided tour of the afterlife. And all of that was actually arranged by heaven. It was an intervention of the saints. And to think that without my noticing it, the saints are, and God himself, and the angels, my guardian angel, are intervening on my behalf all the time. Mm-hmm. And to think how neat it would be to notice that. Yes. Yeah? Yeah, give him a little hat tip every so often. Uh, <laughs> go through like clueless. Uh-huh. Every once in a while you get a little glimpse of, wow, that was providence. Yes. I talk a lot about providence, as we've already discussed. And I'll, I have a class in which it's basically all about providence. And afterwards, my seminarians will come into my office and say, this just happens. Isn't it providential? And I'll go, yeah. I go, oh, come on. You should be more excited than that. I said, you know, everything that happens is providence. Mm-hmm. The only exciting thing is that finally you noticed. <laughs> You can notice all the time. Mm-hmm. It's all there. Yeah. And Dante wasn't taking his spiritual life seriously. The Blessed Virgin Mary was taking his spiritual life more seriously than he was. Mm-hmm. They love us more than we love ourselves. It's, That's the mystery of it all. Yeah. They're, they're doing that for each of us, too. <laughs> yeah. He's, not, he's nobody special in that case, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. They're intervening for you. If you look back in your own life, you sort of see moments where you could have gotten this way and somebody sort of shoved you back the other way. And certainly as a convert, I'm you know so aware of that. I think, you know, why me instead of somebody else who was so much nicer and naturally more virtuous? <laughs> and I mean, you think of the conversion of Alphonse Ratsborn. Yeah. Okay. For for the listeners who probably don't even know, can you can you go ahead and talk about him just for a minute? Well, I mean, he 
it was somebody who was not a believer and in fact decidedly not a believer mm-hmm. he's really atheistic and was converted by experience of the blessed sacrament and um the was it the miraculous medal miraculous as well medal, yeah the miraculous medal and um he had no intention of of becoming a christian and he was told to wear this medal and he did and soon he just he felt conspired against it was he was being picked on and that's really the experience of, of conversion is that you're being cornered mm-hmm. yeah you're being picked on they call what and, they call uh, god the hunter no it was a yeah uh, he, he hunts you down like a, like a, like a bloodhound mm-hmm. um you don't go looking for him he comes looking for you it's like the good shepherd who goes in search of the one sheep it's not the sheep who pounds the shepherd in that we just had Good Shepherd Sunday yesterday. Um, I, I always think of the, the shepherd going in search of the sheep. And when the, I grew up in farm country in Illinois, and uh, <laughs> when you go looking for a lost animal and you find it, uh-huh. it doesn't run into your arms. <laughs> it tries to escape from you. You're trying to find it, and you have to corner it. Uh-huh. You have to capture it. And I think there's something very similar in the spiritual life. God doesn't come looking for us and we go, Thank you. I'm coming. We we try to escape. I think about my two year old sometimes about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's trying to help, and you're trying to get away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes the sleeper hold now and then. <laughs> Just let go before the tap comes. Yeah, yeah. Um, what should they expect in the next two books coming out from you? Mm-hmm. Well, Inferno has been so much about seeing the the destructive power of sin mm-hmm. seeing how the all these different sins could drag you down how they could destroy your life well that's really a, a an argument for beginning the spiritual life for committing to something mm-hmm. purgatory is such a different atmosphere purgatory is really for committed people people who are already on with the project mm-hmm. but who need a push to get moving because mm-hmm. what purgatory is about is as Dante says in the very beginning, I've come to find my freedom. I've come to be free. I want to be free. There are a lot of things that stop me from being as free as, and as happy as I could be. All of us could be way happier than we are uh-huh. right now. And the only thing standing in our way is our own habits. If I became holier, I would be happier. And so it seems to be in my best interest to get down to business. And that's what purgatory is about, inspiring us to start in the process of becoming free and happier. Nobody should have to twist our arm to do that, mm-hmm. but that's what it's really about. And so he goes through this, the seven deadly sins, mm-hmm. which is the different terraces of the, you might remember Thomas Merton's seven-story mountain. Mm-hmm. That's Mount Purgatory. Mm-hmm. So he goes through each of the seven deadly sins, and um, we begin to see how those sins really cramp our style how they get in the way of of our our happiness here mm-hmm. this is not about the damage we're doing to the world it's not the damage you're doing to us then finally in paradise we begin to look at heaven and to see the glory of the saints and the glory of god in a new way it's just always been a strange thing for me as a, as a new catholic um well not new anymore but when i was a new catholic i always thought it was strange that catholics didn't think more about heaven mm-hmm. It's supposed to be our goal, mm-hmm. but it seems as though we were just trying to escape hell. Mm-hmm. 
but if you think about what heaven is, you really ought to want it. Yes. There's a, a great story that I sometimes tell about one of my parishioners when I was first a priest. Actually, I was just a, I, before I was a priest, I was a deacon. I was sent to the hospital to take communion to this lovely deity. And uh, as I got there, the doctor says, I need you to, are you friendly with her? I said, oh yeah, I know her quite well. She says, um, she has no family. Okay. She, says, um, she doesn't know this, but she's dying. And we need you to tell her. Yeah. I'm just starting. Couldn't you, <laughs> couldn't you ask somebody experienced? But it turned out I needed to tell her. I told her. And she started crying a little bit. And I tried to say something consoling. Uh-huh. It's not as bad as you think, or it won't be so bad, you know. And she looks at me as though I just lost my mind. She says, I wanted to go to heaven ever since I made my first communion. I thought I'd have to wait longer. And I was so shocked by this reaction. I walked back from the hospital, which is about six blocks from here, Mm -hmm. just stunned, thinking, well, you know, every Christian ought to think that way. Yes. You know, if God sent us a message saying, I'll beam you up right now, would you like to come? You shouldn't say, well, how about the day after tomorrow? (laughs) You ought to be eager for, for it now. And I think there isn't for heaven. By the third volume, it's called your. Uh, yeah, the, sort of wet the app to make us want to be back. Mm-hmm. Certainly, that's what he said. Can't wait to be back here. Yeah, the, I remember. Uh, I think it was Therese, uh, Therese of Avila again. She talked about how she couldn't wait. I mean, she was up. She would cry because she couldn't go to heaven that day. Yeah, yeah. Do you the same sort of thing? Um, one of my favorites, Antioch. Mm-hmm. My, I am be with Christ. St. Paul does the same thing. He's, he's gone. For me, life is game. Was it, was it Pio that someone said, I hope you live for 100 more years? And he turns around and goes, what did I do to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and I, I, once we have that, once we have a little bit of it, our attitude becomes very different. Mm-hmm. Don't hold on at all costs. But this life has a new because entryway to heaven. Something temporary. It's something that has importance. Not because it's because it's the entrance exam. Yes. Yeah. Permanent. Yeah. I mean, it's a sort of perspective change. Yeah. It's the modern mindset we want to be here we want to be happy here why are we happy here as you said you're not as happy where are you going to find that true happiness is a place we don't want to go right now that's right uh, you know, I, for, for most people it's a sort of consolation prize yeah if i have to die just i get to go someplace nice <laughs> but if i have to choose between i most people would yeah what are some final thoughts for people on this on the on Dante, on heaven in general, saints. Well, I think the, I think that it should be a, we have to go back and rethink our lives from a Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. The world has set the agenda too long. We live in a world which is all about this world. We become worldly, secular, and I think 
as a result, Christianity doesn't ring as true to us as it did a couple generations ago. Mm-hmm. So we need to go back to the basics. We're Christians because we hope in heaven. We're Christians who think about an eternal destiny. Mm-hmm. This life is important because it's going to decide our eternal destiny. I put before you life and death. Choose life. That's the important thing. And I think we need to sort of readjust that perspective because otherwise we're going to gradually fade away. We see it happening in, amongst Catholics around the world. They don't take the faith as seriously because they don't really see it in the light of eternity. Dante wants us to look at our life in the light of eternity. Certainly that was what our Lord's preaching was about. Mm-hmm. You know, you're on the edge of eternity. Act like it. Get your act to live this life as though it were the entrance exam for eternity. Yeah, I think it was St. Cyprian talked about those that uh, didn't believe there was an afterlife, but then acted, and he called them basically lunatics. Yeah. Yeah. So we're sort of living half in, half out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think there's something very uncomfortable about that. And I, I think Dante is a wonderful way of readdressing that balance mm-hmm. of rebalancing things of making us sort of, of see our, our life in this eternal perspective and it makes our life so much more dignified mm-hmm. so much more valuable every moment becomes filled with the promise of eternity and that brings back what we first started with joy right that does yeah well father appreciate it uh can we get a blessing before you go certainly may the blessing of almighty god the father the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Thank you, Father. Appreciate it. You're welcome. God bless you.